Welcome to the Investing Experts Podcast. I'm Daniel Snyder. We're joined by Eric Bazmachin for our quarterly check-in on everything macroeconomics and how it's affecting today's market. We're talking inflation numbers, treasury yields, employment, banks, real estate, and more. This episode is packed with Eric's expert insights, so get ready. But first, did you know you can follow Investing Experts on Seeking Alpha? You'll get notified of every episode release, find relevant links to articles and the investing groups, transcripts of the episode, and so much more. So make sure you check it out. Now let's get into the interview. So we got to dive in. Inflation numbers came out this week. We just got the report. What's the initial takeaway? So inflation um, is decelerating, right? The rate of inflation is coming down. And I like to look at most of the data on a, on a six-month annualized basis. Um, it tends to be the sweet spot because when we're dealing with a fast-moving economy or market, year over year can kind of take a long time to filter through. The month-to-month stuff is a little bit too noisy. So if we look at it on a six-month basis, it tends to be a fairly smooth representation of the trending direction, which is really what we're trying to capture. And inflation on a six-month basis has cooled from a a peak of about 10% uh, to uh, the 3% range now. So it's certainly come down pretty aggressively. Uh, It's not quite back at the Fed's 2% target yet. But what's interesting is if we take the total CPI and we just strip out the shelter component, which we know has that lagged effect, then inflation is about 1.2% over the last three months, three month annualized. And and that metric, CPI less shelter, has averaged about 1.4% over the last eight months. So if you remove the shelter component, inflation has actually normalized back to two and slightly below two for about eight months now. But of course, uh, we can't exclude shelter because the Fed looks at it and it's part of the metric. Uh, So when we do that, it it puffs the number up back to uh, above where the Fed wants it to. So I think overall, there is more than sufficient evidence that the Fed has broke the back of the inflation that we were experiencing. The numbers are trending down. And if you strip it down to try and make it a more real-time measure, They've certainly accomplished their goal of getting it back to 2%. Now it's just a matter of trying to hold policy in a restrictive stance until that shelter component can kind of filter all the way through without allowing some of the progress that they've made to to reaccelerate. Do you have any thought on how long they're going to need to keep interest rates where they are going forward in order to achieve that? Everyone at the moment is... Uh, looking at the CPI to make the assessment of how long the Fed's going to have to hold rates. But when we go back across history uh, and you look at almost every recession in the past, the Fed is aggressively cutting interest rates when core inflation is four, five, six percent, because it's always a market driven event that causes the Fed to have to snap into action and start cutting. At that moment, when the market seizes up, equity markets are falling precipitously, commodity prices are falling precipitously. Uh, They're not, uh, at that moment, nobody's worried about inflation anymore. People are worried about their jobs. And even though the headline numbers are still high, uh, everybody knows that inflation expectations are plunging. So it's really uh, a question of when does the market sort of seize up with a, a credit event type moment? 
And, um, you know, a lot of people keep saying, when is the credit event going to come? And, you know, we've certainly had a handful of them so far. Uh, they just haven't been uh, uh, sufficiently destabilizing yet. Um, so, you know, the, the impetus for the Fed to really uh, pivot, so to speak, is, is never really driven by employment and, and inflation. Those are usually after effects of um, the, the, the market event that's transpiring because of some of the more leading elements of the economy that, that we usually discuss. Now, you're painting a very rosy picture, right? It almost sounds like if somebody's out of the market in cash at this moment in time, should people be fully invested right now? So they're, they're breaking the back of inflation, and we can see that in, in you know, the, the real-time numbers. Now, they obviously have to, have to hold the policy here, but, um, you know, the, the, the decline in inflation is happening as a residual effect of the economy slowing over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, in 2022, GDP growth was 0.9%, right? So this is very weak growth that we've had. And some of the more cyclical areas of the economy are under even more pressure than that in a recession of their own already. So the, the reason that inflation is coming down is not necessarily for, for good reason, right? So we have um, the uh, inverted yield curve that doesn't predict recessions um, as much as it does mechanically cause them, right? It's both predictive and, uh, and causative because uh, banks can't borrow short and lend long. So if banks are, are, are rendered uh, uh, unprofitable, they can't extend new loans and new credit to the economy and you get a pullback in credit and then uh, the inflation rate starts to come down. And we're seeing the early signs of that and to the extent that the Fed holds rates where they are, which for the time being, that seems to be the plan, that process is going to stay in motion and actually intensify. Because even if the Fed doesn't continue to ratchet up the rates, they're still at a level that's very restrictive if they just hold them where they are. So this downward momentum that we're experiencing in the economy and is starting to now flow through the lagging inflation components is not a good thing for corporate earnings, uh, and, and uh, soon-to-be broader employment. Uh, we can maybe touch on some of the employment numbers, but we are seeing job losses on a pretty consistent basis in some critical sectors of the economy. So that's likely to persist, and those things are likely to be negative for corporate earnings, which will be reflected in the quarters to come. In regards to what you just said about corporate earnings, right? this restricted policy is going to hinder corporate earnings. We're just coming out of earnings season where we saw a great number of beats and raises on guidance. So is it here on out that investors should be worried? Was the last quarter the last good quarter? Well, I think it really depends on what parts of the market that you're looking at, right? And one basic way to striate the market is we can look at micro caps, small caps, and large caps, right? Micro caps would be um, your most economically sensitive. You could think of them you know, closer to mom and pop type businesses. Then you have your small caps like the Russell 2000, which represents 2000 stocks, but they're not quite as big as Apple, Microsoft, and Google. And then you have your large caps for the S&P 500, which is dominated by uh, those four or five companies. When you look at micro caps, they have actually made a new low below their October 2022 lows, down way over 20% from the peak. So it has not been a good ride for microcaps. 
if you look at the Russell 2000, they basically have made a new low relative to their October peak as well. They haven't recovered at all, um, down about 20% as well, and, and, and likely to keep trending that way. So for, for large parts of the market, uh, this has not been a very good environment, and earnings season was not that helpful to them. But when you go to the large cap S&P 500 sector, um, then you're starting to see some, some decent performance, spe uh, specifically off that October low. A lot of that has to do with the fact that the uh, recession hasn't proliferated to uh, the most insensitive companies, which would be your Apple, Microsoft, and Google. And also because you've had some reprieve on interest rates where they've come down from four and a half to three and a half on the 10 year. And a move in interest rates like that tends to be more helpful to those bigger companies uh, as opposed to the smaller companies. So I think under the surface, uh, this was not a very good earnings quarter uh, for, for most of the companies that represent the stock market. And they're actually sitting at, at new lows for these broad, large um, conglomerates of stocks. So um, you know, I think that that progression of micro caps to small caps to large caps is very consistent with what we see uh, across across history. I would remind you with just one anecdote that in uh, May of 2008, which was six months into uh, what everyone would consider a bad recession, uh, the S&P 500 was 8% from its all-time high. So these large, uh, somewhat non-cyclical, uh, service-oriented stocks that have become you know, essentially monopolies aren't always the best forward-looking indicator of, of the economy, but some of the more cyclical sectors still are. For the investors that are looking to get a gauge on the market, what are you recommending that they look at? Is it the 10-year yield? Is it the inv inverted yield curve? What do you think? So I think I think the yield curve, if you were to have to pick one measure, is a fairly uh, reliable indicator of where the economy is likely to head. Because I mentioned it's not uh, just predictive, but it actually also causes a recession by uh, rendering financial institutions unprofitable, thereby slowing uh, lending growth and, and, and the broader economy thereafter. It's always difficult to boil it down to one measure. But if I had to, I would say the yield curve would be a, a fairly reliable indication uh, that you would use to, you know, perhaps uh, allocate towards um, stocks or assets that will um, generally trend up over time and um, um, do well when the economy is in a period of expansion, but really trying to avoid the, the sort of nasty drawdowns that come with some of these risk assets that always tend to cluster around recession periods. Um, so if you had to boil it down to one, I think the yield curve is a very good uh, measure. And um, the, the depth of the inversion today is, is pretty alarming, and the duration of the inversion, so how long the curve has stayed inverted, uh, two extremely reliable signals that the economy is, is either in recession now or, or, or soon to be in the, in the coming months. Well, and that's the question, right? So what's your answer to that? Are we in a recession now, or is it coming in the months? So, so if, if you have the job of trying to, trying to time a recession in, in real time or dated, it, it, it's very difficult because data comes with, with a lot of revisions, right? So revisions can be huge around inflection points, which is the months leading up to a recession. For example, it's not impossible. And this happened in the 2007 cycle, where the first GDP number is reported at something like positive 2%. 
And by the time the third revision and benchmark revision comes in, it was actually negative one or negative two, meaning that it can be it can be off directionally, I mean, and magnitudes that are very sharp. So the data that we're seeing today, we have to uh, take it for what it is, but we also have to assume uh, there will be revisions to this data, right? One rule of thumb, though, is the revisions tend to come in the direction that the economy is trending, right? So if the economy is accelerating and moving higher, like it was coming out of the COVID period and in, in 2020 and 2021, the revisions tend to improve the data when you look at it uh, in hindsight. But as the economy has been slowing down, as it has been, and the growth rate starts to get close to zero, and it looks like the economy's momentum is pushing it towards recession, these revisions are almost always to the downside. So we have to take the data at face value, right? The second problem is that the indicators that everybody likes to look at when they talk about recessions, which is usually consumer spending and various uh, measures of the employment market, those two measures don't look recessionary until about one or two months into the recession. And then the data is reported with at least a one month lag. So if you're gonna be looking at employment uh, or consumer spending, you're really not gonna see it until three or four months into the recession. And that's assuming that that data is correct, because if you are in a recession, it'll be revised even lower than what it was reported, right? So we the, the only thing that we can do to try and make a real-time determination is, is go by leading economic indicators and then take a basket of six of them or 10 of them that have proven consistent across time, stack up where they are today, and what they look like in the first couple months of recession. And when we do that, the evidence to me is, is, is sufficient to say that there's a very strong likelihood that when the NBER goes back to date this recession, it could very well be a Q1 uh, start, maybe a Q2 start. It's really hard to say. It depends entirely on how these revisions come through. Eric, you just teed this up better than I ever could have. Okay, so you were talking about the revisions. You're talking about the possibility of recession. You're, we've been talking about employment. We got the employment numbers. You put out this great article under EPB. You know, I read your articles every week. I love the research you do. But like, you talk about how they already revised down the employment numbers of February and March. If you're talking about revising down, being in the recession, is, is that one of those indicators? That sounds like a checkbox. Yeah, that that would certainly, um, you know, every data point that comes in, you sort of revise your thesis and say, okay, did that data strengthen my thesis or weaken my thesis? And that data certainly strengthened the th uh, thesis because, um, you know, uh, downward revisions to the economic data is the rule when you're in, you know, recessionary windows. It's not the exception. So the fact that we had substantial downward revisions, like you said, checkbox in terms of confirming uh, the, the path that I think that we're headed on. Um, so the, the, the prior two months were revised down by 150,000 in total, very substantial. Um, but more importantly to me is when, you, when the economic data comes in, uh, the headline jobs numbers uh, will not show that the economy's in recession on average until about three months into the recession. Uh, if you go back to the 1974 recession, you didn't have a negative 
headline jobs number until eight months into the recession. And then it was reported with a lag. So you would have got that information basically nine or 10 months after the recession already started. So the headline jobs number is not the best barometer because um, education and health services virtually never lose jobs, not even in recessionary periods. And then there's a host of other sectors that, um, like the government that are super non-cyclical and just don't lose jobs in recessionary periods on average. The sectors that drive almost 100% of the job losses are what uh, I would define as your cyclical sectors. So that's your construction, your manufacturing, your temporary health services, and maybe your uh, trucking and transportation, things that feed into that durable goods sector. And a lot of people will now say, well, those sectors are becoming an increasingly small share of the economy. Services is 80%. Why don't we focus on services? I wrote an article about this, and the answer is because services employment uh, declined ahead of recessions zero times. So it's never going to decline ahead of a recession, the month the recession starts, or even two to three months after the recession starts. You'll never, ever see it if you look at the services employment. The second thing is that even though the uh, cyclical sectors are becoming smaller and smaller, the data shows that they still drive vastly more than 50% of the job losses during recessionary periods. Even during the 2008 recession, which came with very heavy job losses in financial services, the cyclical sectors still had more job losses than the service sector. So you have to focus on the cyclical sectors if you want to kind of get the forward-looking read on the momentum of the labor market. And when you do that, when you, when you combine uh, the construction, manufacturing, trucking, and temporary health services, that makes up about 22 million payrolls. And those sectors on a three-month basis to smooth out some of the noise has lost jobs for five consecutive months. Um, so again, you take the downward revisions to the headline number, you take a very consistent string of job losses in the cyclical sectors, and then you stack that up with some of the uh, more forward-looking measures like the inverted yield curve and, and the rest, and it paints a picture that the economy is, is uh, likely in the early stages of a recession, and if not, you know, very close to it. It's it's always tough, like I said, without the revisions to to get super precise. But um, for for asset allocation purposes, I think the timing, whether it's Q1 or Q2, uh, isn't overly important. And so the thought here is that manufacturing is where you actually want to look, but all the media wants to talk about is the tech layoff because that's probably what gets clicks, right? Right. So with us potentially being in a recession right now or going into a recession, portfolio allotment, what are we looking at here? You've been saying defensive for a long time. Is now the time to flip? Like historically, has it been buy heavy in the recession for when we eventually exit? So no, I'm, I'm sticking with the defense. And to, uh, to that point, these large cap tech stocks that have driven the rally would be expressions of defense, right? Those are those are sectors that generally benefit from uh, cyclical downturns in relative sense. So the sectors that I've been encouraging people to avoid would be your financials, your small caps, your cyclicals, because those are the sectors that relatively underperform 
while your low beta, uh, low volatility, you know, things like your utility sectors, and then your, your large cap technology, those, if you're looking in the equity universe, do tend to be your expressions of defense. You'd absolutely want to be with large caps over small caps. You know, you'd absolutely want to be with um, low leverage stocks over high leverage stocks or high, um, you know, uh, balance sheet debt stocks. Um, so in the equity universe, those are the, the allocations that I believe um, will relatively outperform. Um, I prefer gold over its industrial metal counterparts. Gold could decline in a recession. It, it's, it's common if you have a bout of deflation, gold will certainly decline, but it's likely to hold up better than its industrial counterparts like copper and oil. Those tend to have more economic sensitivity. So if I was looking in the commodity universe, I'd want to have a preference for gold uh, over the economically sensitive commodities. And then if I was looking in the fixed income market, I'd want to, uh, I wouldn't want to be taking credit risk. So I'd want to be with holding treasuries over corporates because the, the spread between the two of them will likely widen out in a recession. Uh, and you can be distributed across the curve in terms of duration uh, depending on your appetite for, for risk and volatility. If you just want to, you know, if 5% is good enough for you and you want to tuck away in T-bills, uh, that would be a very smart thing to do. Uh, but if you want to try and profit from a recession um, in a more substantial way, then you'd want to be looking further out on the curve to ETFs like TLT and, and, and those uh, securities, which could rise uh, significantly if the Fed does have to lower interest rates uh, back to the levels that we're used to before COVID. So uh, those are kind of the general uh, portfolio themes that, that I would be using in the environment that I think we're headed to, or which is the uh, maturation of what looks to be an early recession here. Now, I know a lot of investors that are always asking me about real estates and REITs specifically. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we, you know, you've been talking about the, the banks, and obviously, the banks are heavy lenders in that sector as well. And you had a fantastic article diving into real estate with the permits leading and the multifamily versus single family. Can you give us a quick recap of that sector and what's going on with your outlook right now? Yeah, so it's it's funny that you mentioned that in the context of timing the recession. And you know, it's it's a difficult thing to do because it always depends who you're talking to, right? Uh, if you're a 401k investor that predominantly looks at the S&P 500, you may think the recession hasn't come yet. Uh, if you are a real estate investor, though, and you're a commercial, commercial real estate investor, the time to get out was probably a year ago, right? Uh, it may be difficult for you to exit positions now. You may be trapped at this point. So the uh, the declaration of when the recession starts will somewhat be subjective to whose opinion you're, you're getting at the moment, what asset class they're playing in, uh, because it is totally different, right? And, and that is what we're seeing is that uh, in the commercial real estate space, you're seeing pretty, pretty sharp declines in prices. Um, it's not only concentrated with the office buildings. That obviously is the worst part of the commercial real estate sector. But just because the interest rates have gone up or the cap rate, as people call it in real estate, has gone up so much, the value of basically any real estate asset has declined. Um, the same way that a treasury bond mechanically declines in price when interest rates go up, 
The value of real estate holdings mechanically decline when interest rates go up. So the commercial sector uh, is starting to experience declines, not from a credit standpoint, not because people aren't paying their bills, but just because the interest rates have gone up so much that the value of these buildings on paper has declined. Now, the problem is that when those uh, asset holders go to refinance, because most players in real estate are highly leveraged and just continuously roll their financing, when they go to refinance that uh, loan with some of these regional banks, it turns out that the value of that building is a lot less than the amount of their loan because the loan was made when the interest rate was two or three, now it's six or seven. So the, uh, so the asset is worth less than the loan. So it's getting very difficult for these people to get these refinances done. They have to put more equity into the deal, which nobody wants to do. So we're starting to see it in office and some other select categories where you hand the keys back to the bank right? Because the asset is not worth what the loan is worth. Now, this brings into the question of, okay, so what's the real value of the asset if the bank now has the keys and has to find a buyer on the open market? For some of these office buildings, that number is quite scary. Um, and, and that, um, you know, translates to somebody is holding that loss. Uh, and that loss at the moment appears to be on a lot of these regional bank uh, balance sheets uh, where these assets are simply just not worth what they're, uh, what, what they're marked at. Um, so that phenomenon has caused re uh, regional banks and, and, and some of the more prolific lenders to this real estate sector to become much more concerned about the forward outlook and therefore much less likely to extend new loans to that sector. And that has, uh, in effect, caused um, some, some more downward momentum to what was already um, you know, declining prices because, like I said, if you can't get new financing, you know, the whole sector kind of dries up. And with some of the instabilities in the regional banks, that really uh, drove all of the lending in this CRE space um, that that's getting, that's getting much tougher. You just painted the picture that I'm sure Charlie Munger was trying to communicate when he was talking about commercial real estate and what's coming. Like the previous conversation with Silicon Valley and all these others was we invested in us treasuries and now the yields have gone haywire and that's why we had issues and that's why deposits are leaving. But now you're saying that they're having issues with the commercial real estate. I mean, somebody has to bear that loss. And you're saying it's the regional banks? Well, it, you know, there probably will be many people who who share the losses, but at the moment, that looks like one of the sectors that that is concentrated there because when you look at the numbers, and I'll be putting out an article on this shortly, these small banks uh, drive 65% of total commercial real estate lending. So they're very concentrated in this commercial real estate sector. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned the, the held to maturity losses on these treasury bonds. And there's no doubt that that is an issue. Uh, any institution that's leveraged and holds bonds has a mark to market solvency issue as a result of this. However, um, that's not the core issue. Uh, because as we saw, the Fed 
um, has wide scope to deal in treasury and mortgage markets because they're government guaranteed securities. So they set up the uh, bank term funding facility, which allows banks to pledge these underwater securities at par. Now, the problem is that some of these regional banks, their assets are 80 or 90% loans. They really don't have any treasury securities at all. And if the bank term funding program was the solution, why did more banks fail after that? And why are we seeing continued pressure with all of these other banks? And when you look at the banks that have the stress, their asset books are 80 or 90% loans. It's not a treasury security issue. It's the fact that uh, these assets that they're holding um, are coming into question because deposits are leaving. And as deposits are leaving, they have to try and increase the interest rate that they're paying on these deposits. And it's rendering them uh, unprofitable when they do that. Uh, and that's the, the larger issue because the Fed, uh, whether they do it or not, we'll have to see, um, doesn't have the legal authority to deal in commercial real estate. Now, that doesn't mean that they won't bend and break the rules if things get tough, um, but it's not as simple as it is to fix a treasury and mortgage issue. I look forward to reading that article. Everyone listening, if you want to get the insights that Eric puts out, go check out EPB Macro Research. We're going to throw a link in the show notes page. Eric, thank you so much for your time today, all your insights and answering all of my questions. I know our listeners appreciate it. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. At times, myself or the guest might own positions in the securities mentioned, but this is for entertainment purposes only and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. And just a reminder, you can find a link to the investing group service in the description or show notes page on Seeking Alpha. And we'll see you next episode.